Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 20, Great Earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks for listening. Well, this is quite an episode. This is quite a topic. It's full of excitement, scientifically. It's an incredible story of one guy putting this whole story together here in the Pacific Northwest in the face of nobody having any inkling of that kind of history. And one guy completely changing the way we view subduction zones around the world. I mean, it's, it's impossible to overstate the contribution of this one person, Brian Atwater. But at the same time, we're talking about massive loss of life. And I want to honor and respect uh, those tragedies. And so I'll try to find the right balance between the two things. This is different than usual, right? Usually there's just a bunch of casual excitement because we're unlocking secrets from our geologic past. But in this case, these tragedies have happened recently enough, and we're heading for the next tragedy where um, we need to factor in families um, that it's too difficult to even think about the, the suffering. So um, I just want to make sure that's, that's part of this um, tenor uh, of this discussion. So let's pick up where we talked about last time. We were talking about the three-headed monster, the unholy trinity, in Brian Atwater's words, of the three different kinds of earthquakes generated here in the Pacific Northwest, none of which was really understood 30 years ago when I started teaching here at Central Washington University. And now we have a much better feeling, much better understanding of some of the basics but as always, there are plenty of major questions that remain. And the ultimate major question is, how can we forecast these damn things? We know terrible days are ahead. How can we forecast this using the scientific method? Well, let's tell the story of Brian Atwater. That's really the way to do this. And I've been telling his story for 20 years in different forms of media and in my classroom. And... Uh, it's an amazing story. And Brian Atwater is in his 60s now, maybe even his early 70s, I'm not sure. Still lives in Seattle. Very humble guy. Rides the Greyhound bus around when he goes and visits, uh, gives a talk in Ellensburg. Or I just uh, spoke at a convention or a little conference in Lewiston, Idaho in March of this year. And Brian, <laughs> Brian showed up. Took the Greyhound from Seattle to Ellensburg to Spokane, changed buses, came down, and it's like, wow. So he's an interesting guy for many different reasons. But he's one of those bright scientific minds that needs to be celebrated. And that's the emphasis of this episode, to celebrate the scientific work of Brian Atwater. All right, well, um, deep slab quakes, we know hardly anything. Shallow crustal earthquakes, we know a bit more, and the Seattle Fault was discussed in our last episode, and we'll leave that one alone as well. There's major questions that remain. But this deep slab thing, shoot, sorry, but this ocean trench thing, these great earthquakes are a whole different animal. And they have received a lot of attention 
in the last generation, and for good reason. We have the potential to kill hundreds of thousands of people on a Tuesday morning. And I'm not exaggerating, I'm afraid. That's precisely what happened in Sumatra 2004. So we'll get there in a bit. But this is, this is a totally different category in so many respects. But let's just approach it scientifically. The year is 1989. I've just arrived in the Northwest, and I'm not teaching anything about great earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest or any place else for that matter. Great earthquakes, magnitude 9 earthquakes, very poorly understood and certainly not part of the Pacific Northwest history. Well, during the 1980s, a solitary pursuit was taking place. Brian Atwater, hired by the United States Geological Survey in the early 1980s, his first major project was to work up by Grand Coulee Dam on some Ice Age flood deposits, nothing to do with earthquakes. But then he kept, the story goes, he kept hearing that the Pacific Northwest was quiet seismically, meaning that the Juan de Fuca plate was not possible of producing killer earthquakes. And he got interested in the coast of Washington, looking for evidence to see if that really was true. And what he found completely changed our view to the point where we're now removing um, dangerous structures in Seattle. Uh, we're completely revised the building codes and everything about highways and buildings in the Pacific Northwest because we know these magnitude 9 earthquakes, these great earthquakes, that produce 900 times the energy of a, of a magnitude 7 earthquake. 900 times the energy of a magnitude 7 earthquake have happened for sure here in the Pacific Northwest more than once. So what did Brian Atwater find at the coast to prove this is a thing? He found three things. Brian Atwater on the coast of Washington, Oregon, and Northern California found three things at every one of these sites, dozens of sites along the coast. He found dead trees, he found low land, and he found a layer of sand. Dead trees, low land, layer of sand. Those are the three things that Atwater found. And it's way more involved than that, but let's tackle these guys one at a time. The obvious place to start are dead trees. So there are scattered groves of what are now called ghosts, ghost forests. Uh, the first of which that was discovered by Atwater was on the Copalis River, north of Hoquiam, Aberdeen, on the Washington coast. A bunch of trees in a standing forest, clearly dead, uh, but still standing in the tidal mudflats of the Copalis River drainage, just a few miles inland from the shore. And Atwater basically said to himself, I wonder why those trees are dead. Is that a weather thing? Is it a beetle thing? Is it, uh, what's going on here? And he started realizing it wasn't just that grove of trees, that there were other ghost forests up and down the Pacific Northwest coast. So, he got a buddy, David Yamaguchi, in Seattle, to look at the tree ring evidence in those dead trees. 
basically saying, when did these trees die? We can core living trees nearby. We can core the dead trees of the ghost forest. We compare those tree ring patterns, and we can actually count back years and figure out exactly when those trees died. And again, not just one site, but all up and down the west coast of the Pacific Northwest. Well, those trees were all dying at the same winter, the winter of the year 1700. All those trees were alive during the growing season of 1699. All those trees were dead by the next growing season. So something happened regionally in the winter of 1700. Again, that doesn't mean it have to be an earthquake. Couldn't it be something else? Of course it could. There'd be dozens of different ideas for why we'd have regional uh, trees getting killed all at the same time, more or less. But that was the way to get into this story. The second thing that Atwater noticed at all those ghost forest sites is that the land was lower than it should be. In other words, at every ghost forest site, including the Copalis River, which is kind of the, the, the sexiest place to do this, and where we have filmed a couple of programs. Nearby, those Sitka spruce and western red cedar are thriving. They're living. But they're on land that's about, on average, six feet higher than where these dead trees are. So the dead trees at every site are in places where the land appears to have dropped by six feet. Like all the trees were happy and alive, and then maybe during the winter of 1700, Atwater starting to think, maybe the land suddenly dropped at a few of these places, and where the land dropped, the trees got sick and eventually died. Okay, so that's the land being lower than it should be. To finish the three items here, what were they? Dead trees, lower land, and sand layer. Uh, Atwater started digging. He dug a hole at every one of these places where the ghost forests were, where the trees were dead. They all got killed 1700 A.D., and the land was six feet lower than it should be. So in some places he actually dug. In other places he had Mother Nature dig. In other words, he went out during extreme low tides where he could see a cross-section of the layers of earth not really bedrock now. This is like a muddy tidal zone. And he tried to find some clues for what may have happened in that winter of 1700. And he found what he was looking for. He found very clear, obvious evidence of sudden land level change, meaning that the land dropped suddenly. And more than that, there was a layer of sand in many places right at that horizon. In other words, he found in this incredibly muddy place where you go out there and stand and you just slowly sink. You slowly sink into your, into, up to your waist or your thighs. I mean, you're not even moving and you just continue to sink down into this muddy tidal flat. Believe me, we've been out there with canoes and with cameramen, and the cameramen are starting to panic because they're in up over their knees in mud. They're focusing on their camera, but suddenly they can't get out. They're stuck. And you go over and try to help, and you're, you're, st you're sinking as well. That's that much mud. It's quite a spot. It's an estuary where there's fresh water uh, in rivers flowing to the ocean, and then we've got uh, high tide and low tide. And the point is, in that very muddy place where you've got hundreds and hundreds of vertical feet of mud, tidal mud. 
you have these layers of sand. Now, we touched on this last episode, but tsunami deposits are typically sandy horizons that come in with a tsunami. In other words, quote-unquote, normal sedimentation is mud. And then in this case, we've got uh, sand coming in. I, got, I just realized I got my laptop open, and you're hearing a bunch of dings. I don't know how well the mics are picking this up. Those are my emails coming in. So let's I just close that. All right, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Do we have the three things? Dead trees, the land is low by six feet, and we've got a layer of tsunami sand uh, at the time that these trees are getting killed. Now, it's the sand that was the smoking gun. Finally, everybody starts to go, okay, this guy's on to something. Interestingly, Atwater's, uh, one of his student projects in his earlier career, uh, when he was at Stanford, I think, or maybe Delaware, I forget now. I did an interview with him uh, called Central Rocks. You can maybe find it online if you're interested in this. Uh, he was kind of set up to understand the significance of the sand layers because he was either in San Francisco Bay, pretty much, I think he was. He was in San Francisco Bay Area logging all these layers of mud for some, you know, student project. And it was just this boring, repetitive layers of mud with no tsunami deposits whatsoever. And so he expected the same kind of repetitive, boring layers of mud initially in these tidal flats of Washington. But he kept finding these major tsunami deposits, these sand layers. Or if there wasn't a sand layer, there was still uh, a layer that showed abrupt change in base level and, and land uh, elevation. Okay. So Atwater's on to something, and he starts giving talks. And like this all goes, you know, there's skepticism originally because there's kind of this cliquish, clannish scientific community, just like any other cliquish, clannish group. And if somebody's coming out of left field and saying something completely against type, then uh, there's suspicion. But eventually, he brought enough people out to these sites and gave enough public talks uh, and had enough credibility as a scientist uh, to convince everybody this is a great earthquake story evidence of major land dropping. The land drops suddenly. The roots of those trees get plunged into salt water. The trees are dead because the earthquake killed them, not because the ground was shaken so much, but because we poison the trees with salt water. <clears throat> the roots of those trees are sucking salt water instead of fresh water, and they slowly die. Kind of amazing they're still standing after 300 years. Whoops, I just gave the date away. The most recent time that this... No, I gave you the date, sorry. <laughs> Winter of 1700, I already said that, right. Okay, so it's, it's been three, almost 320 years since the last event, and we have not had a great earthquake in Washington since that time. Okay, before we get to the forecast in the future, the next obvious question is, why is the land dropping? Why would you have the land all along the Pacific Northwest coast suddenly drop 6 to 10 feet in some places? Well, a tectonic model has been devised. Let me try to describe it. I don't have the visuals for you now, but let me try to describe it with this silver tongue that I have. Juan de Fuca Plate, moving east and starting to subduct beneath Washington and Oregon. Got it? 
North American plate, that's Washington and Oregon, moving right to left. Imagine the same cross-section that you had in mind. Maybe even drew one out for yourself at the last episode. Find that thing. Find that sketch. Do it again. Here's the concept. And this may change if we know more about the details of the boundary between the, under, the subducting Juan de Fuca plate and the overriding North American plate. But here's our model. For hundreds of years at a time, the boundary between the Juan de Fuca plate and the North American plate is stuck, is locked. That's the model. You subduct the plate. There's all sorts of evidence that the plate is subducting. But if the boundary between the ocean crust and the continental crust is stuck or locked, that means as you subduct the ocean floor, you are dragging the leading edge of North America down with the subducting plate. This is analogous to taking a meter stick that's rigid and solid and, and take that meter stick and, and kind of uh, put it on a tabletop and then scooch that meter stick off the edge of the, the tabletop. Like half the meter stick is off the edge of the table and half the meter stick is still on the table. You with me? And now if we start to put our finger out on the uh, top of the edge of that meter stick out there in space, got it? Start pushing down. Start pushing down on the meter stick off the edge of the table. How you doing? Is this working for you? That's North America. That's Washington and Oregon. Washington and Oregon is the edge of the meter stick being pulled down or pushed down, either one. It's a rigid body where the edge of the North American plate out at the oceanic trench is being dragged down with the subducting plate. And you're like, okay, I think I just did that, but what are we doing right here? We're trying to answer one question, aren't we? Why is the land suddenly dropping at the coast? Here's the final part of this discussion. If we have our meter stick and we're pulling down the end of the meter stick, if it's a rigid meter stick, and most meter sticks are, doesn't that mean as you push down on the end of the meter stick, you're going to arch up the middle part of the meter stick? Now forget the table thing if you want. Just take a freaking meter stick out in front of you right now. Hold it out in front of you. And take your two hands on the end, ends of both, both ends of the meter stick, and you can arch that meter stick, can't you? Oh, good Lord. What, what's... I thought I turned off my email. Oh, that's a kid texting kid being me, talking about the NBA playoffs. Uh, Durant totally changes the... Okay. Good. Sorry. Let me close this laptop. Uh, meter stick. So, rigid meter stick, arch it in front of your face. As you pull down the ends of the meter stick, isn't the middle of the meter stick going up? Like I do this in class, I take the meter stick and I arch it and then I point to the middle of the meter stick with my nose. People always kind of giggle at that. But I don't have any fingers to point to anymore. I, both my hands are being used on the ends of the meter stick. And so the middle of the meter stick is arching up. What am I getting at? You following me? When we finally unlock the lock zone, 
That's what we're talking about now. When we finally fail that plate boundary, two things happen at the same time. The leading edge of the North American plate flips back out to its original position, generating a massive tsunami. And more to the point of this discussion so far, what does the coast do? It drops. I'm going to try that one more time very quickly. Why does the coast of Washington drop during a great earthquake? It drops because during the hundreds of years between great earthquakes, the land is actually lifting. Think of it as quake time and peace time. We have, we think in Washington now, this is our current estimate, 500 years of peace time between great earthquakes. This is a cycle. We're now talking about the future. Atwater has found nine different great earthquakes of different dates going back in time. Our discovery so far was the most recent event, 1700. But he has found earlier evidences of tsunami, of land level change, of land dropping. And our, our round number is an average of 500 years between quakes. So what I'm saying is we have 500 years of locked. That means 500 years of drag the edge of North America down with the trench. That means 500 years of slow land lifting at the coast until finally we have too much stress pumped into that boundary we fail all the energy at once. We release that lock zone. We have the end of the meter stick go back to its original position, and we have that arched middle of the meter stick with my nose on it dropping as we restore the rigid meter stick. Hope that works for you. That's our current model for why we have great earthquakes regularly, not uh, once and that's it. As long as the subduction of the ocean plate continues, we continue to build stress in these trenches. Atwater's the guy to discover all this. In Washington, we now realize it's the story around the world, which is the next step in this discussion. Now that we understand with Atwater's amazing work what is happening at ocean trenches around the world where an ocean crust is subducting beneath a continental crust? Where has this happened in other places in the world in the last, uh, I don't know, 80 years? Well, we can use four examples. 1960, Chile. 1964, Alaska. 2004, Sumatra. 2011, Japan. Right? All four of those were magnitude 9 earthquakes. In the case of Chile, estimated to be up to magnitude 9.5, the biggest earthquake ever recorded. At the time of the 1960 and 1964 great earthquakes, nobody was calling it a great earthquake. Nobody knew about plate tectonics. This is unbelievable. I was born in 1962. I was alive during the 1964 earthquake, and nobody had a clue what was going on, why there were earthquakes. We now know that all four of those places experienced great earthquakes. And what does that mean? Magnitude 9. And what does that mean? Meter stick. 
All four of those places had lock zones, had coast gradually uplifting during the centuries of peacetime. And then finally, the release of the energy, subsidence at the coast, ghost trees, the whole thing at all four of those locations. Chile, Alaska, Sumatra, Japan. Now, Japan is the most recent. That's the Fukushima uh, tragedy with the nuclear power plant. Uh, that's 2011 with, with uh, tsunami waves being caught on video and coming into port harbor towns and uh, all these vehicles being... Uh, you can go to YouTube and find it if you have that in your heart, but uh, it's difficult to watch. And 250,000 fatalities... On one morning, day after Christmas, 2004, Sumatra. Same thing. Locked, unlocked, ocean trench. And in that case, a tsunami crossing the Indian Ocean and killing people in Africa many hours after the great earthquake at Sumatra. This is unacceptable in our quote-unquote, modern and advanced society to not have basic warning systems in place and have people being killed hours after an earthquake. We have the Internet now. We have ways to communicate this information easily and quickly. It's an embarrassment. I'm hoping we will be better in the future, hoping that we have more science and more importantly, more science communication. We're not there yet for sure. All right, I'm getting sad just thinking about all this human suffering. But I would like to uh, put a, a, a coda onto this musical performance. And it's a somber piece today by looking to our future. Once you realize that this is a cycle, and that we've had these massive earthquakes called great earthquakes with massive tsunami that have inundated coastlines over and over and over again. Again, nine of these, for sure, from Atwater's evidence, every 500 years or so. What can we say about the future? And by the way, if it's 500 years between quakes and it's only been 320 years since the last one, I guess we're in good shape. Well, that 500 years is an average number. And who's to say 500 is the right number? We still are compiling evidence the best we can. Now, Atwater has done more than his fair share of the work. The newest way to approach this is to go out into the ocean floor itself. And I'm saying newest, but really this is the last 25 years of a guy named Chris Goldfinger who's been uh, leaving out on research vessels, ships. He works at Oregon State University in the oceanography geology scene. And Goldfinger has been working with things called turbidites. Turbidites are underwater landslide deposits. So you may be aware there are huge submarine canyons off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, underwater. Are you aware of that? Off the edge of the continental shelf, going down the continental slope, there are these massive canyons, bigger than the Grand Canyon. I should really 
figure out how to give a lecture on those. I don't understand why those canyons are even there. But they're there, and there are uh, underwater landslide deposits at the base of each of those major canyons. So Goldfinger and others went out there, uh, sent some piston corers down at the bottom of the research ships, and started analyzing those underwater landslide deposits. The underwater landslide deposits are called turbidites. The underwater landslides themselves, the actual landslide in water, is called a turbidity current. The big surprise, and this is 15 years ago, I guess now, the big surprise is using ash from Mount Mazama, which shows up in those cores, in those turbidites, and keeping track of time along a basic scale, there have been 19 turbidites. I'll say it differently. There have been 19 underwater landslides in each of the major underwater canyons off the coast of the Pacific Northwest in the last 10,000 years. 19 big landslides in each of the canyons simultaneously in the last 10,000 years. And you're like, what are you doing? What are I thought we were talking about great earthquakes. Why are we talking about these underwater landslides? Well, you guessed it, haven't you? It seems likely that massive underwater landslides are being created by unlocking the lock zones in the Oceanic Trench. And that there's a yet a different data set to go along with Atwater's collection at the coast to push our history of great earthquakes back more than the nine uh, great earthquake coastal deposits that Atwater has. So there's more and more work being done by Goldfinger. He's a little bit younger than Atwater. Data continues to come in. But uh, I feel like I need to say this. Uh, there is a disconnect between the underwater ocean records that Goldwater is collecting and the coastal tidal mudflat records that Atwater is collecting. They don't um, line up. The stories don't match as we currently view them. And there's a little bit of back and forth, actually a lot of back and forth, between Atwater and Goldfinger at scientific meetings between that disconnect, between the underwater records and the coastal records. Hopefully, in the next 20 years, uh, either Atwater and Goldfinger or the next generation of folks can find a way to make those two sets of data work better together. But currently, our number is 500 years between great earthquakes in Washington. And if you use Goldfinger's work, as you go farther south in Cascadia, southern Oregon coast, northern California coast, it looks like those great earthquakes are more frequent. And also Goldfinger's work is saying that you don't have to have a great earthquake each time. You can have a magnitude 8 earthquake sometimes or magnitude 8.5 with just a portion of the trench unlocking and not have the entire length 
uh, of the Cascadia subduction zone unlock at the same time. So there's complexities and subtleties there, but I feel like we're, we're in the middle of that and not really at the end of uh, a nice refined data set between those groups. But Atwater got it started, and Atwater is still around, and Atwater is not working aggressively anymore out with those data sets, uh, but he's still around and to be commended, even though he's a very humble person. He should be getting as much attention and recognition as humanly possible. And for the most part, that's been happening, but wonderful fellow. Well, dear listener, I think that's the end of this one. It's an incredible topic that probably deserves more discussion, but I think for our series, we'll end it there. And that's the end of our third uh, uh, episode on earthquakes along the west coast of North America. Uh, Next episode, we're going to switch gears and start talking about Washington geology specifically, talking about lava flows and cascade volcanoes and other things happening in the American West that can all be tied to the history of something called the Farallon Plate. That's coming next time, but for this one, I'd like to say, I love you, thank you for listening, goodbye.